be honest, if you, uh, if you read 1 Kings chapters 5 through 7 in your quiet time this past week, did you get lost? Um, was there ever a point in which you stopped your reading and thought to yourself, wait, where am I? Um, did, did you look at your Bible and then your big cup of coffee and, and think, uh, maybe the coffee's weaker today? Or, or maybe I didn't get enough sleep last night, or, or maybe I just lost my place. W- where was I in all of the details in the, in the temple? Was I, was I at the oxen? No, no, I've already read them. Was I at the gourds or, or, or the, the flowers? W- where, where was I in, in all of this? Well, 1 Kings chapters 5 through 7 are about the construction of, of Solomon's temple. And these chapters are, are filled with intricate details, details in which we tend to get lost, Uh, as we are amazed by the immensity and the beauty of the structure. Uh, There's a sense in which it's probably good and right for us to be overwhelmed by reading such a text like this. We're given this description so that we may, may marvel at its magnitude and remember the might and the majesty and the mercy of God, who will make his presence known to his people in and through his dwelling there in the temple. Think of uh, those scenes in the movies where a character uh, walks into this, this massive room and is left in awe. Uh, often it's a, a child kind of walking into a, a train station, and, and then the camera kind of begins at, at head level of the child, right, looking at the child. And then through the, the magic of cinematography, the camera kind of circles around the child and moving up leaving the child staring up in in wonder, almost kind of disorienting us as viewers, but capturing the wonder and the smallness of that child in the immensity of that space. There's just this little speck that's left there. I think we are to be astounded by what we find here. We are to feel our own smallness, and this is meant to lead us to worship God. Friends, Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have been made to worship God, as we already thought about this morning. Not all pursue the worship of the one true God. Not all pursue the right worship of the one true God. But the wise do. And this is what we learn from 1 Kings chapter 5 through chapter 7, the passage of Scripture that we're studying together this morning. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 5. That's where we're going to begin If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the passage on page 284. First and second Kings were originally one book. And together, their message was that despite Israel's sin, God's promised king will come. Though the book describes a descent from the golden era of Solomon's reign, and that's the part we're in right now. The book describes a descent from the golden era of Solomon's reign into the grueling era of the exile. Though the prophets of God, Elijah and Elisha, expose Israel's disobedience to the law, though, um, though all of this takes place, the book still concludes with a king and son of David being released from prison. And this gives us hope that God will still yet fulfill his promise to send a son to sit on the throne of his father David. The first two chapters of 1 Kings revealed that Solomon would reign on the throne after David, while chapters 3 and 4 
revealed that Solomon was a king who sought wisdom, who judged in wisdom, and whose wisdom blessed other nations. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, they continue to reveal Solomon's wisdom. In particular, these chapters reveal that wisdom pursues the worship of God. In fact, if you wanted a single sentence that encapsulates the message of 1 Kings chapters 5, 6, and 7, then that would be it. Wisdom pursues the worship of God. We see this when in chapter 5, Solomon, he begins to secure materials for the building of the temple of God, the place where God would be worshipped. We see that wisdom pursues the worship of God in chapter 6, when Solomon actually begins building the temple. And then the majority of chapter 7 is devoted to Solomon providing all the necessary equipment and instruments for worship to take place in the temple. From beginning to end, Solomon is pursuing the worship of God. And this is the path of wisdom. We're going to study these three chapters under three headings. Preparing for God's presence, building God's place, and providing for God's praise. Let's begin with our first point, preparing for God's presence. And as we do, follow along uh, as I read 1 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. 1 Kings 5, uh, verses 1 to 12. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. And Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to my father David, Your son, whom I will set on your throne, in your place shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day, who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. And Hiram sent to Solomon, saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I am ready to do all that you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servants shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts to go by sea, to the place you direct, and I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it, and you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired, while Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year, and the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. So these verses, they pick up right where chapter 4 left off. Chapter 4 concluded with a picture of Solomon as a source of blessing to the surrounding nations. And here in chapter 5, Solomon serves as a source of blessing to the nearby nation of Tyre. Year by year, Solomon blessed King Hiram with 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household, and 20,000 cores of beaten olive oil. 
according to one scholar, this is about 600 metric tons of wheat and about 8,000 liters of virgin olive oil. Uh, in, in pursuing King Hiram of Tyre for materials in building the temple of God, Hiram was blessed by Solomon. And be sure to notice why Solomon is seeking uh, materials for building the temple of God. You can find his heart's desire right there in verse 5. Do you see it? Solomon intends to build a house to the name of the Lord, my God. You see, this is personal for Solomon. In verse 3, he said that David, his father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord, his God. But in verse 4, we learn from Solomon's lips that the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. Solomon is not simply reflecting or regurgitating his dad's devotion to Yahweh. The tr true religion is never depersonalized. It's never a, a depersonalized regurgitation of tradition. True religion comes from a heart that has been transformed, is personally relating to him. Solomon is here personally relating to Yahweh, even as Yahweh is personally relating to him. God has made himself known to Solomon, and he is bringing about conditions in Solomon's kingdom where it's possible to establish his presence among his people in his temple. Solomon is pursuing these preparations because he wants God's presence. What about you? Is laboring for the glory of God, building up his name, your heart's desire. Central to all of this is God's promise. God's promise is what motivates these preparations for Solomon. God's promise is summarized by, by Solomon there in verse 5. The Lord said to, my, to David, my father, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. This promise, you'll recall, it harkens back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God entered into a covenant with David. David wanted to build God a house, but God told David that he would build up David's house by raising up a son after him who would build his house. There's a, a play on words that's really fun to read in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're, we're seeing now that God has worked through history to bring Solomon to the throne and given him rest from his enemies so that he can focus on this building project. The result, of course, will be a house for God's name. And the remainder of chapter 5, verses 13 to 18, raise the question of how these materials will begin to come together and form the temple. And the short answer is manpower. Uh, Solomon drafted tens of thousands of men and set them to work. Notice, too, that in verse 18, Hiram's builders, men from Tyre, and the men of Gabal, uh, a nation north of Tyre, were involved in this work. In preparing for God's presence, God's king was exercising a harmonious rule over his nation and other nations. Do you see how the, the blessing of God is beginning to be seen among the nations through Solomon's rule? All of this, of course, comes on the heels of verse 12, where we're told that God gave Solomon wisdom. Verses 13 to 18, you see, are a manifestation of God's wisdom in action. This labor is well-supplied, it's well-organized, and it's well-rested. Uh, you could say that this was a wise and well-rounded plan for preparing for God's presence. But, but what does this have to do with you and me? We, we come to passages like this, and we often feel kind of a, a great distance between ourselves and the events that took place. We could come up with some fairly flat applications for our lives, like how it's wise to enter into favorable business arrangements and to deal generously with those we're partnering with. We could apply this passage by saying that it's wise for us to secure all that's needed for major projects well in advance. 
Uh, we could apply this passage by saying that we'd be wise to make sure that everything is done decently and in order. And that there are enough people. We should make sure there are enough people to do the work that's necessary. We could apply this passage by saying that we should employ varied groups of people on the basis of their skill in their field. In one sense, these are all good and right applications. But, but if we stop here, we may not be taking into consideration where all of this is headed. It's headed to Jesus. How does 1 Kings chapter 5 apply to us as Christians? In answering that question, we are constantly helped by knowing the, the larger picture of redemptive history. In reading this passage, we're helped to know what the, what the whole Bible says about God's king. Here we see, especially in verse 5, that God was fulfilling his promises to raise up a king after David. And he was fulfilling his promises in building his house. As the scriptures progress, a few things become clear. Solomon was a type and a shadow of the final and wisest of kings to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told in the New Testament that when Jesus arrives, someone greater than Solomon has arrived. We read that in Matthew chapter 12, verse 42, and Luke chapter 11, verse 31. We're told in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, that the nations bow down and worship Jesus. They, they serve him, and that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into his consummated kingdom. In Revelation chapter 21, Verse 24, all of this is looking forward to the Lord Jesus Christ as the great wise king who rules the nations and blesses them as God promised he would through Abraham. As we thought about from Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20 last week, we as believers in Jesus have been commissioned to labor for Jesus' glory, to make his power and presence known in the world through the, the proclamation of the good news. Jesus has promised to build his church, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And he has wisely organized local assemblies with capable leaders, elders, and deacons. He has done this so that there might be a physical, spiritual, visible symbol of his presence on earth. He has done this so that in the words of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Christian, when you read 1 Kings chapter 5, you should be reminded that your life's work is to labor for the glory and honor of your king. You've been called into this glorious work by salvation. You've been called into this glorious work, so build up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Build the church of the Lord Jesus Christ by speaking the truth in love. Build the church of the Lord Jesus Christ by meeting the needs of members of this body. We, we all have different strengths and weaknesses. We are all different parts of this body. Some are eyes, to use the words of Paul in his illustration in his letter to the Corinthians. Some are eyes, some are ears, some are mouths, some are hands, some are feet. All are necessary. All are needed. And we use our varied strengths not so that we might rule, for that is the right of the king alone. No, we use our varied strengths so that we might serve our king and serve our fellow laborers. Your life's work is to prepare yourself and others for God's presence. You prepare others for God's presence by telling them that they might be a temple of the living God through faith in Jesus Christ. Your life's work is to prepare others for God's presence in proclaiming the good news. In doing this, you're also preparing them for the day when Jesus returns and makes his presence known to the whole world. This is what it looks like to spend your life wisely and well. Making the worship of the living God your priority 
and pursuit. Solomon has displayed wisdom in pursuing the worship of God. He's begun preparations for building a house for God's name so that his presence may be known on the earth and manifested in the temple. And then in chapter 6, the building actually begins. So this is the second point that we want to consider together now. Building God's place, or you could say building God's palace, uh, if you wanted to. Here, here we're looking at all of chapter 6 and the first 12 verses of chapter 7. For now, just take a look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Do you see there chapter 6, verse 1? In the, 400, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Before the author begins giving his readers a description of how the temple was built, he gives his readers history, which is to say that he gives his readers the reason, the why, the temple was built. Don't you love that? Why do we build? Well, we, we build because of what has happened in our history. And, and what has happened in our history has led us to worship the living God. You see, this, this verse here is not just a date. This is a worshipful delighting in what God has done in the past. What has God done in the past? You see there, he has brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. In other words, he has redeemed us. Now, if, you, if you've read the book of Exodus, jog your memory for a moment. Why did God bring his people out of Egypt? What was the explicit reason that God gave in the book of Exodus for why he wanted to call his people out, to have Pharaoh let his people go? It was worship. This is what Yahweh told Moses to tell Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 3, verse 18. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice, we may worship the Lord our God. Why is Solomon building this temple? So that God may be worshipped and given the glory due his name. God saves his people so that they might worship and serve him. Christian, let the day of your redemption, let the day of Christ's cross and exodus from the grave, let the day of your freedom from slavery to sin fill you with delight in the God who has redeemed your soul. His redemption is glorious, so give him glory. Now consider how glorious this building is. Take a look there at verse 2. Let's read uh, 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 2 through 10. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the walls of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad. The middle one was six cubits broad. And the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story 
was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story, and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it. And he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. This is uh, a massive building. And I wonder if you were able to follow all of what's kind of going on there. It's a massive building. And here's the thing. We're given just enough details to get a sense of the building's magnitude. But we're not given enough details to actually rebuild it. Uh, Even the attempts to reconstruct models of this temple, uh, considerable guesswork is actually required. We're, We're not given this description so that the temple may be rebuilt. We're given this description so that we we may marvel at its magnitude and remember the might and the majesty and the mercy of God, the God who who dwells there and makes his presence known through it. We're to be astounded by what we find here, and it's it's going to happen uh, again. The the details are going to be enlarged even more in verses uh, 14 to 38 of this chapter. It's an even longer section with even more detail, and then actually the latter portion of chapter 7 has uh, even more detail with what's going on. But, but let's just take a look for a moment at some of the highlights from verses 14 to 38. Here in verses 14 to 38, we're, we're taken inside the inner sanctuary, the most holy place. This is God's earthly throne room. It's where his footstool, the Ark of the Covenant, rested. This is where heaven and earth met. It's where sinners sought God for mercy. And it was marvelous. It was a, it was a perfect cube. The, the, the massive wings of the cherubims stretched from wall to wall. Reminders of the Garden of Eden are found here. There were gourds and flowers and palm trees. And just as Adam and Eve walked in the presence of God in the Garden of Eden, so when the, the high priest of Israel entered into this room, he would be reminded that he was walking into God's presence. And one thing we've got to notice is all of the gold. Uh, there's gold everywhere. Read verses 20 to 22 of chapter 6. You see verse 20 there? The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. A cubit, by the way, is, uh, is about 18 inches. Um, sorry. Uh, verse 20. Uh, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all of the house was finished. And the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary overlaid with gold. Now skip down to verse 28. And he overlaid the cherubim with gold. All around the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance into the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. And he overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. <laughs> what, what is the deal with all of this gold? Why all this extravagance? Why is this temple gleaming with gold? Well, because God gleams with glory. As one commentator said, Above all, I suggest that the splendor of the temple is meant to reflect the splendor of Israel's God. That the temple's gold points to Yahweh's glory. If there is an indulgence that is sinful, 
there is an extravagance that is godly. And perhaps the message of the temple gold is that nothing cheap should be offered to Yahweh, but only what is a tribute commensurate with his splendor. I love that. Nothing cheap should be offered to God. Amen to that. And there's another reason I'd suggest to you that, that the temple had to be glorious. And that's because the temple pointed to somebody who was glorious in and of himself in his person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Solomon was a type and shadow of God's true and final king, so the temple was a type and shadow of Jesus. We need to recognize that there is a kind of progression and development as redemptive history unfolds. Just as the tabernacle would give way to the temple as the place of God's worship, so the temple would give way to the Lord Jesus Christ as the center of God's worship. So in the New Testament, our brother Derek mentioned this very helpfully earlier in the service. In, in the New Testament, in John chapter 2, Jesus, he, he cleanses the temple of money changers. And because the glory of the temple was being marred and misused, that's why Jesus did that. Instead of a house of prayer, it had become a den of robbers. And when Jesus cleansed the temple, the, the Jewish religious leaders, they, they come up to him and they ask him, what gives you the right to do this? And in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answers, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the apostle John tells us that Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. Jesus was claiming that the glory of the temple, he was claiming the glory of the temple in his resurrection Jesus was claiming that the fulfillment of the temple had arrived in his own person. Jesus has become the center of worship for the people of God. Why shouldn't the temple of Solomon, which pointed to Jesus, be glorious? What was it that John said at the beginning of his gospel? In John chapter 1, verse 14, we hear these words, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's appropriate that Solomon's temple be filled with gold from floor to ceiling because it visually displayed the glory of the true temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. After verse 38 of chapter 6, we move into chapter 7. In other words, we move from the building of God's palace to the building of Solomon's palace. That's what the first 12 verses of chapter 7 are about. According to verse 38 of chapter 6, God's palace took seven years to build. But according to verse 1 of chapter 7, you see there, it took 13 years to build Solomon's palace and the surrounding royal complexes. What should we make of this? Given the, the greater attention that Solomon gave to his house, what, what, what do we think of this? 13 years to his house and the royal complexes and seven years to God's house. Some of us have suggested that Solomon's real heart was in building his own palace instead of the Lord's palace. This may be right, maybe, but there's a sense in which the Lord's palace was not really complete. Uh, the remainder of chapter 7, verses 13 to 51, which we'll look at later, describe the furnishings that were required for God to inhabit his house and receive worship. Uh, what, what use is it for God to move into a finished but unfurnished house. Has that ever been your experience, moving from one place to another? Have you ever gotten there before your stuff is there, and you're kind of just, well, what do I do here, right? But even if Solomon's real heart was in building his own palace instead of the Lord's palace, 
the author of Kings, he draws our attention to God's palace. And a quick question will reveal this to be the case. Which building project gets the most attention by the author? God's palace does. And, and that's just as it should be. The truth is the, the occupant of the royal palace was to be intimately connected to God and his palace. We can even see that in the text itself. You know, we, we read some portions from verses 1 to 10. We looked briefly at verses 14 to 38 in chapter 6. But did you notice that something stood in between verses 1 to 10 and verses 14 to 38? They were verses 11 to 13. Um, the, the narrative in verses 11 to 13, the narrative about the building of the temple is, is interrupted, so to speak, by God speaking to Solomon. If anyone ever gets to interrupt anything, it's God, right? But, but this is not as much of his, an interruption as you might think. In fact, it might be the very key to understanding the whole section. The key to understanding the connection between God's palace and the king's palace. Read verses 11 to 13 now of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Why does the narrator break up his description of the building of God's temple with these verses. It seems that this message from the maker must have come to Solomon during the construction of the temple, and that this message was important to register with readers. The connection is obvious when you think about it. The king and his praise of God is connected to the presence of God. The king and his praise of God, his devotion to God, his obedience to God, is connected to the presence of God. Do you see what Yahweh is telling Solomon? He's not simply telling him, look, you need to walk in my law. He's telling him, my presence with my people is connected to your praise. This is going to be the story of the book of Kings. The kings of Israel and Judah will abandon the worship of God. They will worship false gods. And this will result in God abandoning his temple, his place. He'll remove his presence, only for that temple to be overrun and the people of Judah carried off into exile. Just as Adam and Eve were sent out of the garden for their sin, so when the kings of Israel lead the people into sin, straying and disobeying God's rules, they too would be thrust out of God's palace, God's place, where that garden imagery resides. What God's people need most is a godly king, a faithful king, a king who will always praise God, only worship God, a king who will keep the law and walk in God's ways. The end of Solomon's story reveals that he was not that king. He did not secure or ensure God's eternal presence with his people. But we know from the scriptures that this is what Jesus has done for us. Friend, if you're, you're here this morning and you're not a believer or a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're not a, a student disciple of Jesus, then I want to invite you to come to him in faith and place, place your trust in him. Jesus is hope for ruined rebels like you and me. 
what God required of Solomon there in verse 12. You see that? That he walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them. That's what God required of Adam. And it's what he requires of you and me. Have you obeyed God? Friends, search your heart for a moment. Ask that question. Have you obeyed God? Have you lived God's way or have you lived your own way? Have you personally, perfectly, and perpetually lived God's way? Have you lived that way without fail? You haven't. None of us have. And here, here is where we may find hope. We may find hope in Jesus. How may we have the hope of God dwelling with us for all eternity? Only through Jesus. In love, God sent Jesus, his one and only most beloved son, to live the life that we have not lived, the life of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Having lived a sinless life, Jesus offered up his life as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice. Jesus died on the cross, bearing the wrath of God for the sin of all of those who would ever turn from their sin and place their faith in him. But the good news of the Bible is that Jesus kept his promise, and the temple of his body was raised on the third day. And now Jesus invites every one of us to turn from our sin, to trust in him, and to dwell with him for all eternity. Jesus is our hope. Believe that he is God's king, that he is the one who lived for you, died for you, and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sin. Turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. We've seen Solomon prepare for God's presence, build God's place or palace, and now we turn to see Solomon providing for God's praise. This is what we find in 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 13 to 51. In these verses, Solomon provides all of the final details for Yahweh, for God, to be able to move into his house and receive worship. So let's turn and consider our third point, providing for God's praise. And as we do, let's read verses 13 to 22 of chapter 7. 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 13 to 22. And King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. And he was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre, a worker of bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. He cast two pillars of bronze. Eighteen cubits was the height of one pillar, and the line of twelve cubits measured its circumference. It was hollow, and its thickness was four fingers. The second pillar was the same. He also made two capitals of cast bronze to set them to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were lattices of checker work and wreaths of chain work for the capitals on the tops of the pillars. A lattice for the one capital and a lattice for the other capital. Likewise, he made pomegranates and two rows around the one lattice work to cover the capital that was on the top of the pillar. And he did the same with the other capital. Now the capitals were on the tops of the pillars in the vestibule of lily work, four cubits. The capitals were on the tops uh, were on the two pillars and also uh, above the rounded projection, which was beside the lattice work. There were 200 pomegranates in two rows all around. And so with the other capital, he set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jachin or Yachin. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. 
and on the tops of the pillars was lily work. Thus the work of the pillars was finished. In these verses, we are introduced to another Hiram of Tyre. Uh, the Hiram mentioned in chapter 5 was Hiram the king of Tyre, but this is a different Hiram. His father was from Tyre, yes, but his mother, as you can see from verse 14, was from the tribe of Naphtali. Uh, the reason why he is summoned is because he's, he's well known for his bronze work. Um, the, the first object of his bronze work are these two massive pillars made completely of bronze. A cubit, as I mentioned earlier, amounts to 18 inches, which means that these pillars are at least 27 feet tall, and if not more than 34 feet tall when you put all those capitals and things on top of them. So that, that means these pillars, would, they would burst through the, roo, uh, the ceiling of, of this room. They were tall. Um, what is more, it doesn't appear that they were actually load-bearing. Uh, they, they may have even been freestanding. Uh, they were placed at the entrance of the temple and given the names Yachin and Boaz, and their goal was to communicate something. I mean, how could they not communicate something, right? Um, though silent, their size and their names spoke. Uh, the, the name Yachin means he will establish, and the name Boaz means in strength. Together, I think we're meant to understand that the Lord will establish his house in his strength, and thus his king and his kingdom in strength. All of Israel, as they came to the, the temple and gathered at the temple, was to see and to know that their hope was in God and in his strength. Remember, all along it was the Lord who had actually laid out this plan, that he would establish David's son, and that David's son would establish his house, and, uh, and that the Lord was in all of this, that he was establishing the house of David. As one believer said, these two pillars signal God's promise and God's power. Brothers and sisters, let us always remember that the Lord Jesus has promised to build his kingdom, and he will do it in his strength. And he will use his means. We trust in his promise and we, use, and we trust in his power. We see the kingdom of God today built by God's promise and power relying on God's means. The ministry of the word and prayer. This is why as a church we do the very ordinary thing of, of opening up the Bible and explaining it and applying it. And praying that God would make it living and active in our lives. In fact, he has. We here this morning are a demonstration of God's promise and power. If you are a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ, a follower of Christ, then through your faith union with Jesus, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. A place where God has fulfilled his promises and is displaying his power. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. If you are a Christian, a believer, a follower, a student disciple of Jesus, then you are being built into the temple of God. To put it succinctly, if you are a believer, you are both a brick, a brick in, and a builder of God's temple. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, we read this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows up into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together 
into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We see that Christians are the temple of the living God. We are bricks and we are giving ourselves to building. And the Apostle Peter says something similar in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He writes, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves likewise, uh, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Through the regenerating and powerful work of the Holy Spirit, Christians individually and corporately are being built into a place where the worship of God occurs. Each of us knows our own hearts. As, as we think about this, uh, that the Lord is using us and we are being built into his temple and we are his temple. Each of us, we know that our hearts are not as bright and glimmering as the gold and the bronze in Solomon's temple. Each of us knows that our hearts are tarnished and stained with sin. We feel that our hearts are not a suitable place for the glorious God. But our feelings do not determine or deter God. He does not, he is not deterred by our feelings. He is determined, he desires to make our hearts his dwelling place. And this is why the gift of the Holy Spirit is such a real uh, and generous gift of Jesus. Part of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is to shine a light on the sin in our hearts, to expose where we're tarnished, where we're impure. And this, by God's grace, leads us to confess our sin, leads us to repent of our sin, and it leads us to trust in the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. This is how God refines our hearts and makes his glory known in our lives. Christian, if you're worried about the suitableness of your heart for God, for the glorious God, then please consider this. Your heart is far more contaminated than you have dared to imagine. And the cleansing power of Jesus' blood is greater than all of your sin. In the words of Julia Johnston, dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. This leads us to something else that we should recognize about this cleansing. In verses 23 to 39 of chapter 7, we're given a ton of detail about Hiram's brilliant bronze work, as if those capitals and lattices and everything weren't enough. We're given more. He, he makes this, um, this sea of cast metal, which has gourds under its brim and 12 oxen underneath. This is something like a, a small swimming pool. Not that you would swim in it, but it was that size. It was that large. Um, it could hold that much water. Hiram, he also made these 10 stands of bronze carried by bronze wheels, and on them were lions and oxen and cherubim, and he also made 10 basins of bronze that held water, and they too were uh, decorated ornately. All of this water uh, may remind those in the temple complex of all of the water that the people of Israel had experienced in their, their life together. They, they crossed the Red Sea. Uh, they crossed the Jordan River. Or maybe... 
maybe, just maybe, it would remind readers of all of the water found in Eden. The water, of course, was used for cleansing in this temple, which is so needed for those who are stained with sin and unclean. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, and Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, believers in Jesus have been washed. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. After listing a number of sins, Paul says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Verses 40 to 46, they, they pick up the pace uh, and name scads of different utensils used in uh, temple worship, pots and shovels and basins. Solomon, of course, remains a prominent figure in this because ultimately all of this is occurring through his provision and wealth. That's why we get the concluding kind of narrative comment there in verses 47 to 51. Take a look at those verses. Read 1 Kings chapter 7, verses 47 to 51. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because there were so many of them. The weight of the bronze was not ascertained. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north, before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps and the tongs of gold, the, the cups, the snuffers, basins, dishes for incense and fire pans of pure gold and the sockets of uh, gold for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place and uh, for the doors of the nave of the temple. Thus, all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David, his father, had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Well, finally, everything has been prepared and provided for God to move into his house. Now God has everything needed for life in his palace. And these Utensils and vessels were instrumental to the life and worship which occurred there. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. These vessels and how we as believers are like them. In 1 Kings chapters 5 through 7, we've seen preparation made for God's presence. We've seen God's place built. And we've seen all of the utensils, vessels and furnishings provided so that God may be praised. Christian, I wonder if you've thought of yourself as a vessel, as, as an instrument to be used for the worship of God. Wisdom pursues worship, and the wise are eager to be used by God for his worship. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul likens Christians to vessels used in a great house. So as you keep the vessels of 1 Kings 7 in mind, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 to 21. Paul writes, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house ready for every good work. Brothers and sisters, having been cleansed by the master, by the blood of Jesus, are you ready to be put to use by him? 
Are you pursuing holiness and sanctification and ready for every good work that he may call you to? Are you ready to worship and serve him? Are you pursuing his worship? Are you pursuing his worship in the lives of others? As you go about the rest of this day and the rest of this week, should the Lord Jesus tarry, as you step into next week, remember 1 Kings chapters 5 through 7. Remember that wisdom pursues the worship of God. Each day, read your Bible and be left in wonder at the God who, at the God who redeems his people. Be left in wonder at the God who redeems. Be left in wonder at who he is and what he has done for sinners like us. And remember that you are a vessel that God uses to draw others into his worship. So tell someone about the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and call them to worship him as the glorious king and temple. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word from 1 Kings uh, chapters 5 through 7. Thank you for how it points us to the glory and the wisdom of Jesus. We pray and ask uh, that you would cause us to walk in your law, to walk in your ways as, as Jesus did for us and for our salvation. Cause us to, to worship Jesus. Remind us that he is the center of our worship. And help us to remember that we, we're a temple of the Holy Spirit, that we are your dwelling place on earth, and the privilege that that is. Help us to remember each moment that you are with us and walking with us, and encourage us in the faith as we walk. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, brothers and sisters, our next song is uh, number 350, The Church's One Foundation, that's found in your hymnal. Go ahead and turn to number 350, the church.